Let us pray. God, your ways are not our ways. You are always more merciful and more loving than we can imagine. And you are always overturning things in our hearts, in our lives, to bring us closer to your beloved community where the walls have been broken down and we live with one another as you intend and where the well-being of each is cared for. So come to us now Holy Spirit, teach us and help us to hear what it is we need to hear as we move into this week. And we ask this in the name of Christ, your anointed one. Amen. By this time in Lent, I wonder if some of us are dreading what we know is coming in this week as we face the most difficult days and hours in Jesus' life. Or maybe some of us on this Palm Sunday are drawn to the irony of the day or the bittersweetness of the crowds that cheer and wave branches of victory, again, knowing what will unfold in the next few days. Matthew's version of this seems particularly grand. Um, the whole city, he says, is in turmoil. So it's not just a crowd of his disciples in this version. This turmoil is like shaken, like an earthquake. The Messiah has arrived, God's anointed one. And if he's come, as people might have thought, if he's come to conquer, that would be a reason to shake with fear. The chaos and bloodshed of a military revolution is certainly scary, I would think, even if you believe in it. But the city would be shaken in coming days by not a bloody revolution, but a revolution of love. And this anointed one has not come, as we know, to destroy enemies, but to heal the sick. Palm Sunday seems a very fitting time to recall the heart of Jesus' ministry, his embrace of all of the undesirables, the sellouts, the cheaters and swindlers, people selling their bodies, people living on next to nothing, people unable to work, people rejected and hated because of their ethnicity, and people who are kept out of sacred spaces for a list of reasons that we'll come to. And Jesus' embrace 
of anyone and everyone who knows their need for love. Who is this? The question comes. And the crowds say, the prophet Jesus. This word prophet is significant because he comes as a prophet in a city that kills the prophets who are sent to it. Imagine Jesus coming down a hill. Many of you have been to the Mount of Olives and you know that it's up and you can see the whole city from there. Coming down this hill from the Mount of Olives and he could have gone, because of that route, he could have gone directly into the temple from there. Now it doesn't say that he stopped to wash himself in the pools that were available nearby, so perhaps he went into the temple ritually unclean. We don't know. But what was even this, the big deal about the dove sellers and the money changers? Was that wrong that they were there selling and providing these animals and doves? Some would say that they were providing a necessary service. This, the point of the temple was to pray and also to offer sacrifices. And so somehow they needed to get these animals and people were coming from everywhere, so they did, they did need to change their money somehow. So you could, could say that they were providing an important and needed service, but where this was happening was perhaps the scandal, and it was certainly creating an obstacle. Particularly, it was creating an obstacle from the standpoint of God's expansive kingdom. Because as many of you might remember, this is happening in the court of the Gentiles, which is the outermost court of the temple and the only place that was designated for people who were not Jews to come and pray and worship God. So Jesus comes and makes space for those who had been kept away. And kept out. Jesus comes as a humble king, we see um, in the riding of a donkey. Humble in that he knows who he is and is clear and honest about it, and he knows who he is not. He's not a military conqueror, and yet. It seems that in this case, he also does not hold back his anger. This forceful overturning of tables. Jesus brings this force and is showing the passion of God. The passion of God for Foreigners and outsiders and people with disabilities and people with sketchy pasts, the people who were not allowed to come in and not allowed to come and worship the one God. In this forceful act of Jesus, we see the passion that precedes the passion with a capital P. The temple was off limits for anybody who was not ritually pure. And this included people whose bodies, for whatever reason, were not whole. And so 
The fact that Jesus heals the blind and the lame right after this is a powerful symbol of God's arms extended. Those people weren't even supposed to be in the temple courts. And yet, they somehow know that after Jesus has made this room, physically made space, somehow they feel safe to come in and to receive this healing. And who is it who notices that and gives thanks to God? The children. The children see it and are singing. Children share the quality of being unproductive that these folks had experienced. Unproductive, that is, according to market standards, the inability to work, perhaps, if they were truly um, severely disabled or blind. Perhaps they were not valued as giving toward the GNP. But the children are the ones that are crying out in praise. The children are the ones that recognize God coming in Jesus. When Jeremiah stood at the temple's gate and proclaimed the condemnation of hypocrisy that we heard, the hypocrisy of this system, of this combination of religious and state leaders, He was also putting himself in mortal danger, just as Jesus did. Later in Jeremiah, um, his life is truly threatened. They, They want to kill him because of the words that he's proclaimed in the temple. When he critiques this establishment that goes out and commits all kinds of injustice and oppression and then comes and says the temple of the Lord the temple of the Lord this is the Lord's temple and so we are safe because God has said that God will be here and it doesn't matter what we do because God has declared this to be the dwelling place of God and in this profound challenge that becomes life-threatening for Jeremiah He is producing some of the prophetic tradition in which Jesus then stands. This prophetic tradition that challenges God's people to allow God to transform their hearts. Jesus is standing in a prophetic tradition. You might remember... Uh, in the beginning of January, Todd offered us um, some lenses to view the Bible. The prophetic vision and the royal or the imperial vision. You might remember him describing the royal vision as focused on affluence and consuming power and prosperity. This is the consolidation of wealth, hoarding, and it is built on the backs of the poor. And because of this, the royal vision is unstable and bound for destruction. 
And as Todd was illustrating that day, by contrast, the prophetic vision. In that vision, God works to save the world by forming an alternative community. A community that embodies God's ways of justice and compassion and hope for all people. And in that vision, all of the dividing walls come tumbling down. The things that keep us from each other. The walls of ethnic identity. The walls between the wealthy and the poor. And the reason the prophetic vision is sustainable is because of that care for the shalom or the well-being of all people. And not just okay, we'll let them in, but especially immigrants, outsiders, people who don't have their religious game on point. And so what Jeremiah is calling the people to and what Jesus is then calling the people to is to simply obey the basics of how God desires us to live together by watching out for those people. And to obey, as I was recalling this week, is based on the word to hear or to listen. To pay attention. Obey my voice, God says. Listen and and pay attention to me. And the disciples and the people on the edges of society and the children are the ones who paid attention. Are the ones that were paying attention in a way that let them see Jesus for who he is. I wonder if we notice what children notice. I wonder if that would actually help us to see Jesus better. Or what about people who we view kind of as we view children? People we think of as not knowing as much as we do. People who maybe don't know as much as we do. People who we look upon as needing our help. These are the ones who received and welcomed Jesus' message. And similarly, children, as you know, quickly can see and tell when what we're doing and what we're saying don't match. Have you ever noticed that? That children are pretty, pretty quick to see that. So when the people come into the temple in Jeremiah's day and say, oh, we are safe, like we can hide here from all of our wickedness, I'm sure their children were aware of the incongruity of that. That we can worship in the temple while oppressing our poor neighbors or going after other gods, whatever they might be. Perhaps parallel words for our day, instead of the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, would be, do not put your trust in these words. This is the land of the free, the land of the free, the land of the free. For who is free but those who do not rely on weapons or dominating force or accumulation of wealth, but instead trust in the creator of the heavens and the earth? No one is free who is bound to anything other than love. And Jesus spends his whole life and all his breath even to his dying breath, trying to show this. He chooses love for the weak, 
love for discarded people, love for compromised people. And to the very end, he remains free. No religious system owns him. No social norm or ethnic boundary controls Jesus. And yet in his freedom, it's, this freedom is not for himself, but for the freeing of all of us. For the freeing of all of us millions who are chained to our money or our poverty or anger or pain or hopelessness. Christ's freedom is for listening to and living God's desires for the world, which is precisely the crumbling of walls and mutual love shared among all God has made. So as we face in our various lives throughout the week, we come in contact with addiction or mental illness, or as we struggle with it ourselves as we see bombs dropped on Syria while we refuse refugees. As we see all the ways that dominating power and wealth are being used, we also see the ways that love is creating new life. We see the Southern Poverty Law Center recruiting immigration lawyer volunteers to stand with those who are threatened with deportation. We see churches declaring sanctuary for that same population of people. We see Black Lives Matter activists who are similarly in the prophetic tradition putting their very lives on the line on behalf of vulnerable people, of their own vulnerability. All these people are free and are becoming vulnerable alongside those who experience oppression and exclusion. And these were Jesus' friends. These are the people he ate with and hung out with, partied with, people overcome by depression losing battles against addiction, people who maybe were a little too passionate or a little too pragmatic, people traumatized by sexual violence or by years of war. These are the people he cleared the way for, the people he wanted to have full and unencumbered access to God. And their purity or their worthiness was not in question. As we turn this week to the difficult events of the days that are coming. And I'm thinking of Jesus' life, though we perhaps experience similar things in our world right now. Let us continue returning to the focus of his life, the driving impulse of Christ's ministry and teaching to clear the path, to clear the path to God and to break down divisions of class and ethnicity, of race, religion, and gender. And to invite everyone, everyone with ears to hear, to live within God's love for all people and to give our whole lives to this powerful love and to consider the costs of such limitless love. 
Perhaps our greatest sin as the church is always the narrowness of our vision and the smallness of our expectations for what God will do and who God really loves, including the times when we doubt that this love and this mysterious God is for us. Jesus is always bringing and overturning And it will always be counterintuitive for us. And we are always in need of more and more freeing at Christ's hands. More and more opening to unbridled love. More being set free from fear and judgment. More practicing awakening to the ways that God is moving in us and through us. In every moment, Just as Todd said last week with our breath, in every moment, God is moving in us and through us. To empower us and allow us to be turned upside down to participate in this new thing. Might we actually invite Jesus to clear whatever obstacles are in us? Perhaps that could be our practice for this Holy Week asking Christ to clear away in us, to continue breaking down, dividing walls inside of us. Walls that are among us. Walls and impediments that get in the way of beloved community. Things that keep us trapped in judging or deciding who is worthy, including ourselves. Or deciding who is worth listening to. Maybe we would become even better partners with people who've experienced violence or violation or trauma in their own bodies. Maybe we might, in small ways, let go of the need to lead the way. And we might be able to learn more from people who are struggling in ways that are unimaginable to us. Or people who are living a reality that is unimaginable to us. We might be open to listening and learning more. Maybe in the process, we would even waste less time judging ourselves and doubting whether we are worthy of the love that comes to us in every breath and continues to call our name. And we would experience the humility of knowing that many of us are not the best placed to recognize and welcome the kingdom this kingdom of God as it continues to come. But we need others. We need our sisters and brothers and neighbors who have lived as outsiders and who have been targeted by systems that are perpetuating dividing walls. We need those people to teach us and to point out the kingdom to us as it's emerging. We need to learn to notice what they notice. What walls need to come down within you, within our community even? What is it that needs to be turned upside down this week?